Join with me in opening to Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, page 662 of your pew Bibles. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And uh, this is the story of the paralyzed man that was brought to Jesus on a mat, obviously for healing. But it's a man who got more than, uh, from Jesus than he bargained for or that his friends expected, right? It begins like this, Matthew 9, 2 through 8. It says, some men brought, brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to continue reading in a minute. But that seems like an innocuous statement. You know, I might say that to somebody, you know, I, with the, the little caveat at the end, in Christ, right? Um, this, this would seem like it's a story of healing, but throughout this dialogue, I want you to notice that the word healing isn't even used, not even in any of the accounts, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that concern this story. But it's obvious, though, that these friends have brought their buddy, their friend, to Jesus to be healed. And this is an episode that is found not only here in Matthew, but also in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2, and, or no, Luke chapter 5 and Mark chapter 2. And only Matthew removes the details of the decision to dig a hole in the, in the roof in, in order to lower this guy down to Jesus. It, it took a great deal of determination, in other words, I want to point that out, uh, to get this guy to Jesus, persevering in this great hope that Jesus would heal him. But we're going to see that Jesus does much more and even more important things than that. But that was in their minds. That's, that's what they were thinking, healing, not forgiveness, since that's what Jesus proclaims first, right? But this, this statement from Jesus automatically conjures the ire of the teachers of the law. It continues in verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, right? You know, so he's, blaspheming is just a big word for talking you know, out of line about God or towards God or whatever. Um, blaspheming only because, blaspheming, however you want to say it, uh, only because God, God is the only one that can forgive sins, right? So the, the right here, you have to see that if Jesus ever claimed divinity in the scriptures, this is one place. Because to say that your sins are forgiven given to someone else is to equate yourself with God, Right? And that is a big no-no, obviously, for these Jewish leaders, these teachers of the law. But it continues in verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, right? Now, it would be easy to make either statement to a healthy man, but to a guy who couldn't walk, only the former is much easier to say, the latter obviously would be impossible, right? The, so the question is from Christ here is rhetorical. He doesn't really expect an answer, and he doesn't wait to, to, for them to give one. He continues in verse 6. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, now the Son of Man is a term that he uses to reference himself, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, and he went home. 
And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, as I would have been, and you would have been, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now here's the question, such authority to what kind of man? <laughs> right, it's a good question. You know, uh, and I think that there are things here in this passage that need exploration that you might not normally think of. When Jesus declares this paralyzed man's sins to be forgiven, Jesus declares his own authority as equal to God the Father, right? He uses the Son of Man, that term, in reference to himself here. And I don't know if you know, but the, the term Son of Man is used 88 times in the New Testament. In fact, the Son of Man is the primary title that Jesus uses to refer to himself, right? And the only use of the the term son of man in clear reference to Jesus spoken by someone else other than himself occurs uh, or or comes from Stephen as he was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. And in that he says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, so Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and he, son of the son of or the Son of Man, standing on the right hand of God. Right? So Stephen uses this term in reference to Jesus. And it's the only other time it's used there. And we'll see in a minute why Stephen had this vision. Uh, but let's focus on that term son of man. Uh, what exactly does the Son of Man mean? I, I ask myself these questions, so I expect that you do. I don't know if you do. Maybe you're like, oh, this is going to be a boring one. Well, just sit back and relax. But anyway, but the first, firstly, the, the, Son of Man, the title Son of Man is used uh, to reference humanity, right? Other titles for Christ, like the Son of God, are overt in their focus on his deity. But Son of Man, in contrast, focuses on the humanity of Christ, which is a good thing. God called uh, the prophet Ezekiel son of man 93 times. And in that way, God was simply calling Ezekiel a human being. Son of man is simply a roundabout term for human, right? In other words, Jesus Christ was truly a human being in the flesh in bodily form. 1 John chapter 4 verse 2. Secondly, Son of Man is a title of humility when it comes to Jesus, right? Because Jesus, as we know, is the second person into the Trinity. He is eternal in nature. He, he left heaven's glory. He took on human flesh. He became the Son of Man, right? Born in a manger, despised and rejected by mankind, which is a prophecy of the Messiah from Isaiah 53, verse 3. And it says in Scripture that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, Luke chapter 9, that he ate and drank with sinners, Matthew chapter 11, that he suffered at the hands of, uh, of men, Matthew chapter 17. So the intentional lowering of his status from King of Heaven to Son of Man is the epitome of, of humility on Christ's part. 
And we see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And that says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Amen to that. Thirdly, Son of Man is also a title of deity. Now, Ezekiel may have been a Son of Man, but Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man, right? And he refers to himself as such over and over and over again. He is what we call the second Adam, right? The supreme example of all that God intended for mankind, humankind to be, right? The embodiment of truth and grace, John chapter one, verse 14, right? In him, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form as indicated in Colossians chapter two, verse nine. You know, for this reason, the son of man was able to forgive sins. We see here in Matthew nine, he is Lord of the Sabbath in Mark chapter two. He came to save us in Luke chapter nine and and chapter 10, 19, I mean. He, He came to rise from the dead, Mark chapter nine, and he came to execute judgment, John chapter five. And at his trial, right before, uh, you know, he was crucified, at his trial, standing in front of the high priest, Jesus said this, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see, and he's referencing himself, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven, Matthew 26, 64. Now, if you remember, This is the statement that immediately ended the trial, right? As the court could now accuse him of blasphemy and condemn him to death. And if you remember, that's exactly what Stephen quoted as he was being stoned to death. But why did Stephen say that? And why was it such a controversial thing for Jesus to proclaim during his trial? Well, the Son of Man is also a fulfillment of prophecy, right? Jesus' claim before the high priest during his trial to be the Son of Man was a a direct reference to the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 7. And that says this. Hi, Stephen. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. power. All all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Now, let me stop there for a second and think about the Great Commission. Go and baptize all nations, all people groups. Think about revelations at the end of the end of the Bible and all of the nations, all the people gathering before the throne of God and worshiping Christ, right? Think about Matthew 24, 14, one of my favorite verses where it says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. I just said to some people this week, we don't, don't know when Jesus is coming back, but he's not coming back tomorrow. How do I know that? Because all nations have not heard the gospel yet. We still have work to do as the church. I can say that with pretty, you know, almost 100% confidence. 
Not because I'm some great wizard or something like that and I can see the future, but because it's what Jesus says. And remember what we talked about in the last couple of weeks when, when God, during the transfiguration, God says, the God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. So I'm listening to Jesus. All nations have to hear the gospel until he returns. Let's get to work, man. I want Jesus back, right? No more wars in Ukraine, no more this, no more that. No more tears, I digress, but I am a preacher. I intend to do that, so let's get back to this. Anyway, <laughs> but so all people's nations and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be or never be destroyed. So Daniel saw there glory, and he saw worship, and he saw an everlasting kingdom given to the Messiah led by the Messiah, and here is referred to as the Son of Man. And what Jesus was doing was applying Daniel's prophecy to himself. And Jesus also spoke of his coming kingdom on other occasions. We obviously know that quite often. And we remember the author of Hebrews used a reference to the Son of Man in the Psalms to teach that Jesus, the true Son of Man, will be the ruler of all things. Hebrews chapter 2, referencing Psalm 8. The Son of Man is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the Son of Man, Jesus, will be the forever king reigning over the everything, right? <laughs> and remember, the first Adam fell into sin, right? And uh, I just, I heard a great joke about that. Never mind. I, it's not appropriate. Anyway, I, I'm going to, I'm going to temper myself. <laughs> and for those that know me, that's hard to do. But the first Adam fell into sin and he abdicated his special place in God's kingdom as a result of that. And he affected all of the human race in bringing it low into sin, right? That's what the first Adam did. But Jesus as the second Adam, what did he do? He lived sinlessly, and in that he became a model of what humanity was intended to be originally, right? Elevating it to where it was intended it to be. And rightfully, he takes his throne as such, the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully God, fully human. And as Son of God and Son of Man, he's deserving of both titles, you know, some theologians make this separation between the nature of God's kingdom now and what we're involved in now and uh, its nature in the future, and they call the, the, the here and now kingdom of God the kingdom of grace. In other words, we're living under the grace of God. We're inviting people into the grace of God to understand God's mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and that's a time, period of time. But in the future, it will be the kingdom of glory, and I kind of like that distinction. You know, in this story, Jesus demonstrates his authority with the, the less spectacular. And that, isn't that true? Like, most of the greatest things in life are the less spectacular things, Right? a marriage that keeps going on for 60 years. My mom and dad had 65, 66 years of, of marriage. You know, it might seem day in and day out, just the same old, same old, 
but what a what a what an opus that is what a great work of art that is right 66 years of marriage right so so in his authority he does this with this this less spectacular thing though arguably it's the more powerful thing and that is the act of forgiveness if you were standing there and you saw the guy get up and walk home wow but jesus says your your sins are forgiven yeah is that true? Right? And that's because no one could forgive God but God himself. And by forgiving this man's sin and proclaiming himself to be the son of man from Daniel's prophecy, Jesus is saying, I'm God and I can do this. And it is downright evil for you to say otherwise. I love how Jesus speaks to the, the teachers of the law and these Pharisees. I love it. I love it. We, have to, we need more of that. The faith of the people as well as the authority and the power that Jesus holds creates this condition for this man's restoration. And surprisingly, surprisingly, Jesus not only heals here, but more importantly, he forgives sin. It's a big deal. Much of the focus is on the faith of the people since the building up of faith is a significant sort of purpose for these demonstrations of power, these healings and things like that. We know that faith comes by hearing the word of God. We, we, we see that in scripture, but it is strengthened by seeing Christ work. Going through Alpha and hearing all these stories is, is strengthening my faith. I get excited about it, right? Jesus claimed to have forgiven the man's sin was unprovable in and of itself. But Jesus seals that claim by saying to the man, you know, get up and walk, by healing him. And the, both the man's forgiveness and his healing are proven or given validity when he picks up his mat and he walks out the door, right? Now, it's easy to say those words, your sins are forgiven. Keith, your sins are forgiven. Natalie, your sins are forgiven. Kristen, your sins are forgiven. That's easy to say, isn't it? But it's another thing, it's a very different thing to make an invalid walk. Some would argue that this is Jesus' greatest of all demonstrations of his power. People just can't go around telling other people that God holds nothing against them. It's not in their, you know, place. They're I'm losing myself here. Claiming to know and to deliver divine amnesty is presumptive on anybody's part. Yet Jesus authoritatively tells another human being where they stand with God the Father. Jesus states the act of forgiveness declares his authority as the Son of Man and it's, and it's his act of forgiveness that the... Uh, that most unsettles these Pharisees, these teachers of the law. It's not the healing at all. If you'll notice, they were upset before he ever healed them. And in the other two accounts, they actually say, who can forgive except God alone, right? They're all upset. These guys kind of spend their life that way, right? And they name his act as blasphemy. To you, that may not sound like a big deal. Everybody's throwing God's name in the mud these days. But... This is a big deal. 
They hear Jesus in their minds slandering God the Father when he claims the same authority when in reality this forgiveness gives witness to his shared authority and his oneness with God the Father. And the paralyzed man is put right simply on the basis of the faith of himself maybe and the, his little company of friends. The deepest salvation is mediated to the man freely because of Christ through faith. You know, forgiveness is a multifaceted topic. It's a challenging topic. It's something that I know many of you struggle with because I've had, I've had discussions with you about what's going on in your life and the people in your life. And sometimes it's very diff- difficult. But we must consider God's gracious forgiveness of us through the mediation of Jesus Christ as well as we must consider Jesus' commandments upon us to forgive others. For instance, Matthew 18 says says this, Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, which is just a euphemism for never-ending. An unlimited amount of times. Donna Tartt's book, The Goldfinch, and its film adaptation followed this young man, Theo Decker, in, in the aftermath of a terrorist attack that killed his mother. And he narrates in that book, he says, though everything that's happened to me since then is thoroughly my fault, still when I lost her, I lost sight of any landmark that might have led me some, to someplace happier. So his self-blame in the book uh, drives a host of sort of destructive behaviors because, which brings him no resolution in life. And Theo is just as unable to forgive himself at the end of the book as, it, as he was in the beginning. And he denies all meaning and all purpose in life as many today deny that in today's society. Yet he acknowledges that there is one thing, that there is love in the midst of meaninglessness. Love in the midst of meaninglessness. And the love, if nothing else, compels him to keep on and continue living. And we know as Christians that God is love from 1 John 4, 16, right? And that love holds us even when we can't find the strength to forgive ourselves or forgive others in our lives. We love because he first loves us, loved us, right? We forgive because he first forgave us. But forgiveness for us can be a struggle, it can take time. However, the forgiveness of sin wrought by Jesus on the cross confers on us a responsibility to extend it to others as we give witness to Jesus' authority in our lives. Sometimes I need to be told you're not allowed to live in your bitterness as a Christian. That's not the right place to live. You have to move beyond it for your sake and for others, but ultimately for the glory of Christ in your life, right? So let's hover on that statement, God is love, for a minute. 
What does that mean, <laughs> right? What is love? And I, I can't do it justice here in this little short sermon, but love is certainly not, we know, the freedom to just do it whatever you're ple- you please. That is destructive and that is hurtful, but it is the way that society defines love these days. But that is the exact opposite of love, isn't it? It really is. Love has boundaries and directives. Love is a decision. Love is a commitment. It comes with risk in relationship, doesn't it? It's decisive. It's determined. It's active. It's not just based on emotions and romance or affinities. If that were true, you'd never do anything for anybody that's not like you or doesn't agree with you. You don't get married with a guarantee that you're going to be happy forever together, right? Uh, you, you make a decision on your wedding day. You stand there before God and for, before people, and you make that decision and that commitment and that statement, I'm going to love this person, <laughs> right? You stick a marker in the ground of life, and you say, you choose to love this person for better or for worse. Come hell or high water, I'm going to be here for you. Love has the best of intention of the other person in mind. It looks at the other and it says, I'm going to give the best of myself so that they can be the best of themselves. God is love. Which means that love originates with God and is God. We love because he loves. That's the only reason. We know love and, and are aware of love because God is love. And we were created in his image, as broken as it might be. Because sin distorted that image, right? It's like looking in the mirror and somebody threw a rock at it. You can still see remnants of it, but it's cracked and there's shards. But God wants the best for you. That is the truth. He wants the best for you, and which is why he sets boundaries for our own good, and he forgives us so lavishly in Christ. He wants us to be free to be the best that we were created to be. He is the prodigal father to the prodigal son. Prodigal meaning to express something lavishly so the the son spends lavishly in his selfishness and the father receives him back home spending lavishly all of his wealth and his grace and his mercy on the son he loves so he forgives therefore we love so we forgive in him Scripture says, in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, creator imprinted himself upon the created. And what we were originally created to be is found in the likeness of this second Adam, this son of man, this son of God, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, walking around with us for a time being and then ascending to heaven, but giving us his Holy Spirit to live it all out. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because we have been forgiven in him. By the way, every day I gotta be forgiven. Wasn't just one time. I'm a wonderful, rotten, dirty scoundrel. And Jesus loves me anyway. 
I, I, I'm very grateful for that. So Jesus, part of Jesus' coming is to empower and to reorder us to be what God originally intended for humanity, right? Hence, he's the second Adam, the, the perfect human. He enables us to love and to forgive in our relationships around us. In one of the novels of the Outlander, it, it includes a powerful sort of prayerful meditation on the meaning of forgiveness in the person of the male lead, Jamie Fraser, who was sexually assaulted by a British officer. And the author describes forgiveness as a practice happening over time until the day when he would recall to mind the attacker's face and his head, but instead of rage showing up like it usually did, instead it was replaced with pity. And he says, I waited in emptiness in faith, and then grace came. The necessary vision. Grace is the necessary vision. And he felt once more the gift of pity, calm in its descent as the landing of a dove. And of his attacker, Fraser could then say, he had been a man, nothing more. Think about the people in your life that you need to forgive the horrible things that they've done to you. And listen to this. He had been a man, or she had been a woman, whatever. He had been a man, nothing more. And in the recognition of that common, frail humanity, all power of past fear and pain vanished like smoke. In much the same way, Jesus offers forgiveness to us in the ultimate act of pity, for our human condition. We are all sinners, all of us who have made sometimes pretty horrible mistakes. One of the guys in our prison fellowship shot a guy in the head. How do you live with that? Only by Jesus do you live with that, right? We have made horrible mistakes, but in the end, we're all just people in need of the strength which only comes by faith in Jesus. In his teachings, Jesus insists on the need to forgive, but forgiveness can take a long time. Still, he gives us the clear command to pursue and to practice it in faith as per who he is and what he's done. And I'll tell you truth, truthfully, sometimes we need to just pray for the ability to forgive and for Christ to fill our hearts with love for that other person. Because it's not within me normally, at least not to the extent that I need it to be. So throughout the season of Lent, a simple practice like the prayer of examine, which we've gone through before at 6A, it can, be, it can be a really helpful sort of way to examine your own hearts and this thought of forgiveness and things like that. To grow in compassion for others as we seek to practice forgiveness in the lives of others or with others. In his spiritual exercises, Ignatius urged that everyone be taught the examine, what he called. And it was a daily reflection of our response to the events of the day. The purpose of this reflection was to see God's presence 
in your life for the day and to discern his direction for you in the day. Otherwise, you just kind of march through your day, go to sleep, and you don't even pay attention to it, right? But Ignatius believed the key to a healthy spirituality is to find God in all moments, in all things, and to work constantly to, to cooperate with God's will in your life. And he said our response to, to daily events fall into two categories. One is our consolations, those things that connect us to God or connect us to each other and even connect us to ourselves. And then our desolations, those things that disconnect us from God, ourselves, and others, right? And Ignatius believed that God would speak to us through those two experiences or feelings. And the examine helps us to acknowledge these sort of sad or painful or fearful feelings in us and how God speaks through those things even to overcome sort of a pessimistic, pessimistic outlook uh, by encouraging us to notice the good that God is doing in us each day. To tell the truth about who we are to ourselves and what we actually need rather than who we think we should be or claim that we need, which is often not what we need. And to become aware of seemingly insignificant moments, which ultimately can give direction for our lives. The prayer of examine takes about just 15 minutes at the end of the day, and it just involves three parts, and usually you just get someplace where you're comfortable and you can relax, and you begin by asking God to bring to your awareness the moment today, that day, which, which you are most grateful for. Right? And, and if you could relive one moment, which one would it be? Right? When were you most o open to give and receive love in that day or in that moment? And ask yourself what was said and what was done in that moment which made it so good for you. And then breathe in the gratitude that you felt for it and receive life again from that moment. That's the first then ask God to bring to your awareness the moment that day which you are least grateful for, right? When, when were you least able to give and receive love in that day? Ask yourself, what was said or done in that moment that made it very difficult for you? And then relive those feelings without trying to change them or fix them. And take in deep breaths and allow God's love to fill you right where you are. And then, finally, give thanks for whatever God has spoken to you in those moments, how, whatever you've experienced. And then I would say, share that with another trusted Christian friend of yours and help them, ask them to help you pick it apart and pray through it. Journal your thoughts and keep them written because rereading these notes over time helps us see God's grace in our lives uh, when things seem impossible and forgiveness oftentimes feels impossible, right? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we want to be faithful followers as we await your return under your kingdom of grace. We long for the future kingdom of glory that you will bring about by your authority and power and love and mercy. We want to recognize the power and authority we have in you to forgive ourselves or to forgive others 
because of what's been done in us, because you are love, because you are forgiving, and you are the creator of humanity, and you want us to model who you are in character and in action. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.